If you have a copy of God's Word this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Charles Blondin was the stage name of a Frenchman who so excelled at the art of tightrope walking that in the late 1800s to tightrope walk was, co- was, was called to Blondin. They didn't even call it tightrope walking. They just said, he is going to go Blondin. Eventually, this man who was so well-skilled in his craft came to the United States from France performing in a circus in New York where he would cross ropes blindfolded, where he would go halfway, sit in a chair, or even push a wheelbarrow across the rope. But what made his career was a walk across Niagara Falls. On June 30th, 1859, for the first time, he easily made it across the 1,100-foot expanse at the United States and Canadian border. He would continue crossing that Niagara Gorge several times, performing the same kind of tricks as before. Once he even crossed halfway, stopped on the line, fried an egg, and ate it. All the while balancing on that rope. It is said that on one occasion he came back from pushing the wheelbarrow across, and the promoter of the event that was working with him and his manager was there and applauded him. Blondin, it is said said to him, do you believe that I can cross this gorge? Do you believe that I can balance on this line? To which the promoter said, well, of course I do. I just saw you do it. No, Blondin said, do you really believe I can do it? Do you really believe I can do it? The promoter said, of course I I believe that you can do it. No, 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 Blondin said, do you really believe that I can cross this gorge safely with this wheelbarrow? He says, yes, of course I can. He said, then climb up here and get into the wheelbarrow. Sometimes faith is not as easy as it seems. When it comes to living the Christian life, all who claim the name of Christ begin in the same place with a foundational trust, a belief, a faith in Jesus to save us from our sins. But when it goes past that, when it comes to living day in and day out by faith in Christ, what we too often find is that our faith begins to waver. That unbelief creeps in and that the faith that we once had and thought we were secure in is revealed to be weak. Believing that Jesus can save us from hell somehow becomes easier than believing that Jesus is worth more than a large paycheck. That Jesus can change a person's heart or that Jesus alone is sufficient to get us through a terrible loss. When we face those circumstances, suddenly our faith is shown to be feeble. And this morning, as we begin, we want to see that this is not a new phenomenon to Jesus' followers. Jesus, in fact, first disciples were the same way, but their faithlessness is not presented to us in a way that would cause us to to not worry about our faithlessness. Quite the opposite. Their faithlessness is shown to be greatly upsetting and frustrating to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we want to see this morning in part. I invite you to follow along as I begin reading at verse 37 of Luke chapter 9. Luke begins, On the next day, when he had come down from the mountain, that is Jesus, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams in the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be here with you and bear with you? 
bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. May God bless the reading of his word. As we continue to make our way through the Gospel of Luke, we see here Luke reminding us what has just taken place, what we just looked at last week. On the next day, they came down from the mountain. Glance just up a, a, a few verses and you'll remember that some of the disciples were with Jesus on this mountain and had this incredible experience of seeing Jesus' glory, of having the, the veil of His humanity, as it were, pulled back that they might see uh, the, the beauty and power of Him as the divine Son of God. They saw His glory, we are told, even as Moses and Elijah uh, were there in glory also, bearing witness to the glory of Jesus. They experienced the glory cloud of God Himself, God the Father, as it came down and filled that mountain, even even as it had previously came down and descended upon the very temple itself. They heard the voice of God declaring of Jesus, This is my Son, my Chosen One. But now they've come down from the mountain. They've come down from this proverbial mountaintop experience and the bliss of those few moments when everything in the world seemed right and the way that it should be back down into the normal way of things. And what is the normal way of things? Here Luke shows us that the normal way of things is in fact a spiritual battlefield where even demonic forces fight against God and humanity often ends up sprawled out, injured and defeated on the ground as a result, notice the evidence of this battle. This man comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son. I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And what is Jesus' response? Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Now, given everything that you've seen, from the Gospel of Luke so far, if you're a member, perhaps if you only know a little bit about Jesus and you're visiting with us, does that seem overly harsh to you? Does that seem, that response somewhat seem to, to come out of the blue? After all, who is he upset with? Is he upset with the Father that he would come to him and ask for help? He's never been upset with anybody else that's come to him repeatedly asking for help. No, in fact, who he is upset with is the very disciples here who are unable to cast out this demon. He's upset with them. And again, the question is why? And the context is important, as it always is. In the context of the narrative, Jesus had not long ago commissioned the twelve to go and to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, and he gave them authority to accomplish miraculous signs to authenticate their message as truly coming from God. And Luke records in the opening verses of this chapter that Jesus called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over all demons, all demons, and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. In other words, from Jesus' perspective, there is no reason for them not to have been able to deal with the demon afflicting this man's son. There's no reason for them not to have been able to bring relief to this family. There is only unbelief on the part of the disciples that resulted in their failure. 
After all they have heard Jesus say, after all they have seen him do, after all they have learned and experienced as his disciples, they are still weak and meager in their faith. Thus, this is no temper tantrum on Jesus' part. This is, in fact, holy indignation at what he sees in front of him. Moreover, I think it's in this flash of indignation that that we actually gain a different kind of glimpse into the glory of Christ. We've seen it in this amazing way on the mountain as the veil has kind of been, been pulled back and we have seen more clearly who Jesus is. But I think even here the veil is pulled back a little bit and we see more clearly who Jesus is. Think about how often we talk about the, the humbling nature of Jesus taking on flesh. But have you ever considered the frustrating nature of Jesus taking on flesh? Have you ever considered what it must have been like for the very Son of God, having received eternal glory in the fellowship of the Father and the Son, with angels created to worship and serve Him, to suddenly be among people like us? People who didn't acknowledge His majesty, who didn't worship His glory, who didn't obey His instructions, who didn't believe His life-giving words? That must have been incredibly frustrating for Him. And like Moses, a mere man, so many centuries before, Jesus looks around at his people, people who are supposedly his followers, his very disciples who are committed to him. And he sees nothing less than unbelief. He sees faithlessness and he wonders, how long am I going to have to put up with this? How long am I going to have to put up with this? And even now I'm forced to wonder as he gazes down from the portals of heaven, having accomplished his saving work on the cross and now being resurrected to glory and sending back to the Father, as he now looks down at his people, at us, I wonder what he thinks. I wonder if he is also looking at us thinking, how long? How long must I put up with their faithlessness? This morning we see in this text a rebuke to all unbelief in God. Whether it is unbelief in the saving work of the Son, the sovereign reign of the Father, or the sanctifying ministry of the Spirit. If we doubt His power and His presence and His good and His grace towards us, then we should feel the sting of Jesus' words here. The question is, what are we going to do about it? If we, like the disciples, have a weak and meager faith, how will we overcome this? So that Jesus does not look at us in frustration but with pleasure because we are trusting in him. What do we do? How do we deal with unbelief? Well, first we should humbly admit that we have unbelief. We should first admit that we have a weak and meager faith. In Mark's account of this same incident, the father says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a great place to start. That that, that is the foundational prayer that all of us should begin with. Notice Jesus never says, Jesus never says, have more faith. But Jesus often says, have real faith. See, the reality is, it's not, it's not, the, not the amount of faith that's important. It's whether or not it is genuine. That is always the concern in the Bible. Because again, Jesus will say, we've said before, even, even faith the size of a mustard seed is sufficient to move mountains in God's kingdom. It, it's, never, it's never the quantity of faith, it's the quality of faith that God is concerned with. So also here. But more than that, we should not simply admit that we have a weak and feeble faith. We should also direct our thoughts towards that which will encourage our faith. Paul, and as we've seen on Sunday nights, the writer of the Hebrews is constantly directing our gaze upward. Have you noticed that? 
They're always telling us, look to Jesus. Focus on the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on the things of the Spirit. The New Testament writers are constantly telling us, think on something other than your life. Think upon something other than your circumstances. Dwell on, focus on something other than yourself. Why? Because faith will be encouraged when we do that. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we will find unbelief vanishing from our life. So this morning, as we think about this passage, what we want to do as we approach it is see in our lives, we want to see in our lives, we want to see a cultivation of real, steady, consistent faith in this life that we might arm ourselves in a fight against unbelief. And we want to do that by focusing our gaze on two things. First of all, First of all, if we are to fight against unbelief and cultivate real faith, we must first remember God's sovereignty. We must first remember God's sovereignty. Now that may seem like an unusual place to begin. Because actually all over this passage and right where we usually find our faith being squeezed is in this area of God's sovereignty. When the fires of life heat up, when the pain of life becomes severe, when the blows of life rain down upon us endlessly, we tend to look up to heaven and ask, why? 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 Why this? Why now? Why me? And the reality is when we don't get the answers that we want or as quick as we want, we begin to doubt. We begin to doubt that that God is there, that he's powerful enough to take care of our circumstances, that he even cares enough about us and therefore we stop believing but we can stop ourselves from going there we can stop ourselves from pursuing that line of unbelief from from falling into it there is help for our minds and our souls we are tempted and it is simply this there is help in remembering god's sovereignty specifically from this passage we see that we should remember god's sovereignty in, in three ways first of all we should remember that god is sovereign over suffering god is sovereign over suffering D.A. Carson has written an incredibly helpful book on suffering. In the opening pages, he makes this observation, quotes, We do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. If by that point our beliefs are largely out of step with the God who has disclosed himself in the Bible and supremely in Jesus, then the pain from the personal tragedy may be multiplied many times over as we begin to question the very foundations of our faith. In other words, what he's saying is this. If we don't do the hard work of laying a foundation of understanding about how God is sovereign over evil and suffering, then when we experience evil and suffering, our faith is going to waver. So so we need to get ahead of it. We need to lay that foundation so when everything else goes away, when everything else falls apart, we're still standing on the rock. We're still standing on the rock. God's sovereignty is a phrase that we use a lot, at least I use it a lot, but maybe we're, we're unclear on exactly what that means. To speak of God's sovereignty biblically is to speak of his complete, his unshakable, and his uncompromising rule and reign over all things. So J.I. Packer defines it this way, God's dominion is total. He wills as he chooses and carries out all that he wills and none can stay his hand or thwart his plans. That's what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty. God's dominion is total. He wills as he chooses and carries out all that he wills and none can stay his hand or thwart his plans. Simply put, God is king and there is no other. 
That's what we talk, that's what we mean when we talk about God's sovereignty. What we see here is that He is King even over suffering. The, the occasion of Jesus' words and deed and the suffering of this boy, the only son of a loving father, is what prompts us to think this way. Because of this evil spirit, the boy, we're told, suddenly cries out, convulses, so that he foams the mouth and is shattered. That is, he is bruised from falling to the ground. Now, as we seek to understand the Bible, sometimes it is hard for us to to, to put ourselves in a, a different culture and to think like them so that we can clearly understand what they're being told and how we can translate that to today. But frankly, I have no problem here. I have no problem whatsoever because... I can feel the pain in the father's plea. As a, as a father myself, I can feel the ache of a parent who just wants his child safe. Who just wants his child well. In fact, just this week, I read about a little boy who was five years old and through the Make-A-Wish Foundation, he was able to be Bat Boy in part of San Francisco. The whole thing was transformed into Gotham City for this little boy. And a man dressed just like him as Batman rode around together in a black Lamborghini with Batman stickers on the side. And he got to go around the city saving people, disarming a fake bomb, and overcoming the Riddler and the Penguin. Frankly, I was jealous. (laughs) And, and, I mean, you you can't but help be moved to tears when you watch this thing. And and just the, the, the joyful memories that that gave to that kid and to his parents. But the reality is this. It is no solution to the problem that that kid faces. It is no fix to the pain that his family has gone through. It is merely a distraction. For here is the difficult reality. He is a five-year-old who's been battling cancer since he was 18 months old. That, my friends, is the epitome of suffering. It is the epitome of suffering. Suffering in this life is real and it is deep. But what is comforting, what stabilizes us in our faith is remembering that God is sovereign over it. That there are no accidents in this world. We will thread the needle together once we arrive at the end of this point. But here's the point that I want to make. Even in this text... God is sovereign over that demon afflicting this child. God reigns as king over all things, even our suffering. And secondly, even over our spiritual enemies. He is sovereign over our spiritual enemies. That's what we see here in this passage. Though some would cause, would want to to believe that the symptoms given here would have a completely naturalistic cause, we've already seen from Luke's gospel the ancient peoples were not as dumb as we presume. They don't just look at someone having difficulties and say, well, it must be an evil spirit. No, they're able to discern, in fact, probably better than we are, what is physical and mental and what is spiritual when it comes to the origin of our afflictions. And here we see very clearly the cause of the boy's suffering. Verse 40, it was a spirit that would seize him. Now, I think this is probably something that what we have seen before in terms of possession. I think it would best to be think of this as, as a demonic affliction and notice that, it, notice that it's ongoing. The father says the spirit will hardly leave him alone. Verse 39. In fact, even as Jesus approaches, the spirit seizes him one last time, knowing that he will be banished forever from this boy by Christ. You, you know, when I think about... When I think about the, the biblical stories, when I think about the biblical presentation of, of Satan and demons, our spiritual enemies, it, it, is, it is always strange to me. Actually, it's not really strange. It's more a, 
a symptom of our spiritual perversity than in so many of our our movies and our television shows and our literary fiction, somehow the devil comes out looking like some kind of a hero. Have you noticed this? You have, you have, uh, the good guys in movies that, that, that fight with the power of demonic forces. You have some who, who would even say, uh, in a classic work like Milton's Paradise Lost and Milton's Paradise Regained, that, that Paradise Regained, oh, that's, that, that's nothing, but boy, that Paradise Lost, the devil is something else, isn't he? I mean, he's just great in that. So Satan becomes some kind of a, a charming rogue that we get behind and always cheer for and sympathize with. But you understand, biblically speaking, that, that, that's not, that's not who the devil is. The devil is a pathetic wretch of a being who though given the glory of being in the very presence of God himself, chose instead of worshiping God to rebel against him. He, he, metaphorically speaking, he spat in the face of majestic beauty to the infinite degree and said, I am worth more glory than you ever will be, God. The epitome of his shamefulness and his shameful existence is see here that he actually tortures children for kicks. I mean, I mean, what, what can we possibly feel towards him but loathing when we see something like this? The disciples didn't succumb to a romanticized view of our spiritual enemies, but they did forget the sovereignty of God over them. Though they've been given authority over them, over all demons were told, they cannot drive this one away. Why? Because in the face of its power, in the face of its cruelty, they forget God is sovereign. They forget that it is his authority, not their own, that they are wielding. And they cannot drive the demon away. We've already seen this throughout the gospel already. We've seen numerous times as Jesus has cast out demons like nothing. That God has total supremacy over every spiritual force. They, in fact, they are like a dog on a leash. They are only permitted so much latitude and only then for so long. Eventually their end will come. And even now they have a ruler. Though they fight and they thrash and rebel against him, God reigns over every demonic being. Now think about this. If he reigns over beings as powerful and as scheming and as malevolent as this and their power is only the tiniest fraction of his own, then what can thwart God? What can undermine his reign and topple him from his throne? The answer is nothing. Nothing. Not your boss at work, who's a punk. Not your family who mocks you for your faith. Not politicians. Not even death. The answer is nothing can thwart his sovereignty. Nothing at all can stop his reign. And that's why we have to remember. We have to remember that God is sovereign in splendorous majesty. This is the third thing that we see. God is sovereign in splendorous majesty. After Jesus drives away the demon, Luke tells us that all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, what majesty did they see? Well, surely it's Jesus' authority to cast the, to just, this demon's done, gone. I mean, I don't know what the disciples were doing. I, mean, I don't know if they were yelling at the thing. I don't know if they were praying. But, but it was their lack of faith that caused them not to be able to do anything. And Jesus just steps up and with a word, this thing is gone. And here they are given a, a glimpse of the, uh, of the majesty of God. But, but we don't live in the same realm as them. We don't live in the same era of God's redeeming work as them. We live on this side of the finished work of Christ. So, so when we look at this text, 
And we, and, we, and, we, and we shift our vision to kind of a wide-angle lens. What does this point us to? What kind of splendorous majesty do we see? We see a deeper, a brighter, a, a high-definition majesty, if you will. We see it when Paul can write something like this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us all. How can, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Yet in all of these things, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, that is the splendorous majesty of being one of Christ's disciples in this day. We have this present, this precious promise, this sweet and savory application of God's sovereignty over all things directed now towards us. Towards us. So that while there is real and deep suffering in this world, it's painful, it's pervasive. We need to realize it doesn't happen apart from the sovereignty of God. And that sovereignty means God is never asleep at the wheel. God was never impotent to act. No, that's not the God of the Bible. He is a heavenly father who allows all things to happen, even when he knows it's going to be painful, but because it will accomplish good purposes for us and for the world. You need to understand that. Though God is not directly causing all suffering, in His sovereignty He stands behind it. And that should be comforting again because what we realize is there is a God at work ruling and reigning, ensuring that what others mean for evil, He is intending for good, both in this life and the next. If we were to encourage faith in our hearts, we should not only remember God's sovereignty, but secondly, we should also reflect on God's Savior. We should reflect on God's Savior. In our passage, everybody is standing around amazed at what Jesus has done and His power, and yet He is concerned for the faith of the disciples. In fact, He brings them to the central issue of things. He says in verse 43, While they were marveling at everything He was doing, Jesus said to His disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they may not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask what he was saying. Here's another reason for the disciples' failure. Part of their unbelief sprung from the fact they didn't sufficiently understand who Jesus was or what he was there to do. If you're a fan of classical art, there is this uh, painting that uh, is often used for uh, book covers, for websites, and it's, it's uh, Raphael's painting of the Transfiguration. And the part that we usually see is the top half of the painting, which is Jesus kind of floating in heavenly glow with Moses and Elijah facing him, pointing to him, as it were, and the disciples uh, amazed and shocked at their feet. 
But what gets cut off is the second half of the picture, which shows this very scene. Remember that when Jesus comes down, the disciples have already been trying to, to drive away the demon. They've not been able to do it. And so what Raphael does is, it, is he has this contrast of Jesus in glory on the top of the mountain with, with uh, Peter, James, and John, Moses, and Elijah all looking at his glory. But, but down at the bottom of the mountain, they're all fighting. They're all arguing. They're all looking confused. Why can't we hand out this demon? And some are pointing accusingly at others. And the father just looks distressed. And, and, and the, the boy is limp, clearly affected by it all. His point, I think, is that the people at the bottom of the mountain haven't understood what's taking place at the top of the mountain. And therefore they are faithless, powerless to deal with this problem like they should. This morning, along with every other day of our lives, we should listen to Jesus' words here. We should let them sink into our ears. Because if we do, if we consider them, if we understand them, if we believe them, we ourselves will be strengthened in the fight against unbelief. What do we reflect on when we think about Jesus as a Savior? First of all, we reflect that He is a humble Savior. That He is a humble Savior. Now, just to put a lantern on it there, if you're looking in your notes, you'll see that somehow we went from point two to point three point one. This is, this is called the editing process of a sermon, and you'll be thankful that there's no third point. There's just two points this morning, so it should be 2.1, all right? Chuck Colson, a name you may or may not recognize, but he is one who put his faith in Christ in part because of the humbleness he saw of Jesus in the Gospels. He had seen the arrogance of people in politics. He had lived that life, and it was a dramatic contrast when he looked at Jesus. Here's what he writes. In one of his books, Jesus served others first. He spoke to those whom no one would speak. He dined with the lowest members of society. He touched the untouchables. He had no throne, no crown, no bevy of students or armored guards. A borrowed manger and a borrowed tomb framed his earthly life. Kings and presidents surround themselves with minions who rush ahead, swing doors wide and stand at attention as they wait for the great to pass. Jesus said that he himself stands at the door and knocks patiently waiting to enter into our lives. Likewise, Jesus says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. What does that mean? Why is is He going to be delivered into the hands of men? Because in His humility, He has laid aside His authority. He has laid aside His glory. And He is allowing Himself to be taken into the hands of men, to be held captive, to be put on trial, and to die, though completely innocent, a criminal's death for others. Jesus' whole purpose of coming was to go humbly to the cross. Not even just to die, Paul says. He humbled himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Death on the cross was like no other death in Rome. It was, it was humiliating. It was, it was, it was disgusting. It was the kind of thing that parents would, would bring their little kids out and say, you want to end up like that? Then you better behave. It was a warning to other criminals. Yeah, you're a petty, you're a petty thief now, but you get out of line, that's what it's gonna be like. You're gonna rebel against Rome, you're gonna rebel against the Caesar, you're gonna be strung up there. Naked, bloody, suffocating before the world to see. Until you die and the crows pick the flesh off your bones. Is that what you want? And Paul says, Jesus, who, who lived in unapproachable glory, laid that aside in humility that he might take the place of sinners under God's wrath. He he died that we who deserve the cross might be set free. 
He died as the substitute, receiving the judgment we deserve for our sins, that we might know peace with God. He was a humble Savior, but more importantly, He was a mighty Savior. He was a mighty Savior. When you read the Gospels, it's interesting that of all the titles for His ministry, this is Jesus' favorite, the Son of Man. And that's unexpected when you read the Old Testament because it doesn't show up that much. There's lots of other things. There is the anointed one. There is the servant. There's all these other titles for what Jesus is going to do as the Christ, as the Messiah. And yet Jesus picks this one, the Son of Man. And that's what he refers to himself the most throughout all the Gospels. And the question is, why does he do that? And the answer is the one that we've seen before. It's because people had a misunderstanding about what it meant for him to be the Christ. They had their ideas of what the Messiah was going to be, but those weren't God's ideas. That, that wasn't Jesus' ideas. So, so Jesus effectively takes this legitimate title, but one in which there is hardly any theology built up in, and begins to put it forward and building a theology upon it. So Jesus essentially takes this empty container of a title, Son of Man. He says, here comes the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Let me tell you who he is. He's going to do this, and he's going to do this, and he's going to do this, and he's going to do this. And so suddenly, when the end comes, when Jesus is crucified, when he raises back from the dead, suddenly all of the thoughts about the Son of Man come together and they realize, oh, the Son of Man, that's the Christ. We had it wrong. The, the Messiah is not going to be like that. He's going to be like this. The very thing that Jesus was describing for us. So where does he get this reference from? It comes from Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is the one sent from God himself, the Ancient of Days, who sits on his throne. And as the Son of Man approaches him in the glory of heaven, Daniel says that he is given by God dominion and glory and a kingdom. In other words, he is given the right to reign over all things just as God the Father does. So Jesus is saying here, I am the Son of Man, fully divine, completely sovereign, ruling over all things. Jesus is claiming an incredible power for himself. But the question that should ring in our minds is, wait a minute, didn't you just say he was going to be handed over to men? How, how can you claim such power for yourself when you're saying that, that, that mere men are going to take you and to kill you? How, how can we know that Jesus really has his authority? How do we really know that he is all-powerful? How do we know that his death just wasn't a victim of circumstance? We can be confident of the might of the authority of Christ, because later Jesus will speak about his death, and here is what he says. No one takes my life from me. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. Jesus says, I don't die by an accident. I'm not just going to be uh, killed because of circumstances, because of all of the political things coming. No, 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 no. He says, I have the authority to lay down my life. But more than that, he goes on in the very next part of the verse, and he says, and I also have authority to take it back up. Jesus says, I have authority from the Father to lay down my life at the right time and for the right reason at the right place, and I also have authority to take it back up. And that's exactly what he did. Not even death could hold Jesus. On the third day, he raises back to life and he shows he is the Son of Man. He is the one with authority. He was the one who humbled himself, but now reigns in mighty power. That's who Jesus is. Now, how is that going to help us in unbelief? How, how will looking at Jesus in humbleness and might help build faith in us? How will, how will reflecting on the gospel help in our fight? It will help in this way. It shows us that God is for us. God is for us. He's given us. Remember Paul said, he's given us his son. Why would, he, why would he withhold anything else from us? 
God is for us. It helps us because it shows that nothing is better, nothing is more powerful than Jesus. He's the only one that deserves our faith as Savior. He's the one that can satisfy our hearts and save our souls. No one else. It helps because everything else in this world is seen with greater clarity now from the perspective of eternity. We have difficulty in this life that that, that just flummoxes us. But when we look at it through the grid, the lens of what Jesus has come and done, we get a different perspective on things. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who brings sinners into fellowship with the Father that we might dwell for Him with other, if that, if, with, forever. If that's true, it changes everything. It should change everything. The more we reflect on that, suddenly the worst problems don't seem so difficult. And so the hymn writer can say this, O soul, are you weary and untroubled? No light in the darkness to see? There's a light to look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It doesn't mean that we ignore our struggle. It doesn't mean that it's not even painful. It means that when we consider our struggles, our suffering, our pain in this life, in the light of Christ's work for us and the eternal grace we've received from God, those things seem to begin to matter less and less and less and less. And those things are less and less of a threat to our belief, our faith in God. The whys become less important because we know we have a heavenly father who has given us far more than we could ever deserve, far more than we could ever earn to the offering of Jesus, his son. He's promised that even our sufferings will serve us. We're not, we don't just conquer them. We are more than conquerors. That means our very enemies now are, are forced to serve us. What does that mean? Well, without going into another sermon here, it simply means this. Even our sufferings now become an opportunity for us to grow in our faith and in godliness. So that even when the demons are seeking to come against us, when our enemies are seeking to, to kill us and to stop us, they simply come to the means for our maturity in God. Horatio Spafford was a very successful businessman in Chicago. And when the great Chicago fire took place in the 1800s, it was a tremendous disaster. And many of his friends lost everything they possessed in that fire, even their very livelihoods. And at that point, Spafford took stock of his life. He decided that he did not want to live for the kind of things that he had been living for. He wanted to get to know Jesus more deeply and more personally. So he decided to move the things that had distracted him away from his life and pick up himself, his wife, and his four daughters and move the entire family to Jerusalem. Because that's what we would do, right? Just give up everything and go dwell in the Holy Land and read scriptures. At the last minute, as they were packed and ready to leave, the arrangements for the sale of part of his property was discovered not to have gone through the way that they thought. So they had intended to, to sail on together. He put his wife and his four daughters on a boat and sent them on to France. Said, I will finish this sail up and I will meet you there and we will make our way on to Jerusalem. Spafford was incredibly dismayed to hear, though, that the ship that they were traveling on was struck by another ship and quickly sank. And it was only a little relief when he received a telegram from his wife that had only two words, saved alone. What she meant was, you sent four women on that ship and only one of them survived. Still grieving the loss of his daughters when Spafford took his own journey across the Atlantic to France to join his wife 
at one point the captain made a point of calling him up on the bridge. And he said, based on the radio transmissions, based on the charts and the records that we have, we believe this is where the ship went down and your daughters died. After pausing there for a moment, Spaffer went back to his room. And he began to weep and he began to pen one of the most famous hymns ever written. It goes like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. If we want to battle unbelief, even the most difficult times, then we will remember God's sovereignty and we will reflect on God's Savior. For in there we see God's glory like no other place. Father, it is my prayer for us this morning that our faith would become more deeply sincere, not so easily divided and threatened by the difficulties of this world. Father, I pray, Lord, not so much for the size of our faith, but the authenticity of our faith. And God, I pray that you would help cultivate that even as we have thought about this passage. That God, our minds will be drawn up to your complete and utter reign, but also your sovereign care over all things. So that so much so that you took the worst disaster, the worst sin in the history of the world, the death of your very son, and you turned it for the greatest good, namely the salvation of sinners. God, when our minds focused on those things god may our hearts follow and god may our very beings find you an object worthy of faith god we ask these names in christ's name and for his sake amen